podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And it is the Lenten season. I can't help uh, think of the movie The Ten Commandments in the Lenten season, probably because when I was growing up, that movie was inevitably shown at some point in time. And it's an old movie. I know many are, I mean, I'm dating myself a bit, but I don't care because I like the movie, even though it's not accurate on some things because (laughs) Moses was not Charlton Heston. Biblically speaking, Moses had a speech issue. And Charlton Heston did not have such a thing. But in the movie, The Ten Commandments, there's a scene where Pharaoh and his wife are sitting on their thrones after the Israelites had fled across the Red Sea. And all of Pharaoh's army had been drowned. His wife hated Moses. She's so mad and she's like, you couldn't even kill that guy. Pharaoh, who's played by Yul Brenner, one of my bald brothers, responds, his God is God. How, how do you how do you do? I mean, what do you how do you respond when God works like that? It's, the only thing you can do is just marvel. How do you how do you respond? I mean, what do you say when you have encountered something that is so obviously of God? I mean, what do you do? Do you try to fight it? I'm not talking about the stuff that we make up, okay? Not the stuff that we make up or create in our head, manufacturing that God has done it, but really bona fide, proven, like this, there's no other way to go except to say that God has done that. Now, and what do you do when you see God at work in your life? Or in your spouse or with your kids. I mean, what do you do when you see God is working in in a school or in a neighborhood or in a workplace? What do others do when they see God is working? Today, that's what I want to look at. What happens at our marriages, our homes, workplaces, schools, neighborhoods when God is at work? So let's check out this passage in Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 22. So let's get after it. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
By seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us then warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot speak of what we, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what happened, for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So let's catch up. Last week, we left off with this miraculous healing of a man born lame and Peter using the opportunity of his healing to tell a large crowd the truth about who Jesus is. And while many are transformed by the message, there are others who are threatened. There is something about the gospel that is a threat to each one of us. It's not usual for us to think of the gospel in that way, but when God begins working in a life, in a community or nation, not everyone welcomes it. There's a reason why that there are laws against the Bible in several different countries of the world, whether it's a total ban or whether it's only available in certain languages or to certain people. It's the most legislated and controversial book on the planet and why Christianity is the most persecuted faith on the face of the planet. Why? Because it does change lives and it goes against our natural desires for sin. Not everyone welcomes this kind of change. Not everyone was a fan of the formerly lame man walking. And for many, the formerly lame man inspired hope. But for others, he actually represented a threat. It was something outside of their control that they could not understand. You see, that's what happens when God works in our lives. We can see that when God is working, it threatens the way we live. God's work always threatens the way we live because God is constantly calling for change. And here, it really threatened the religious leaders. Look back at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. When we are standing up for God and when we see God at work, it is really a threat toward how we live. Look at verse 2. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So here we have the priests, captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Why? Now, the text says it's pretty clearly. Clearly, They were annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, this Greek word for annoyed means to be troubled, displeased, offended, pained. It wasn't just their preaching, but the content of their preaching. It was the resurrection that Peter and John were preaching, something the Sadducees, by the way, could not accept. You see, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And they denied the resurrection from the dead, along with all spirits and angels. So Jesus would have been a huge threat to everything that they knew and loved, for his resurrection would fly in the face of everything that they knew. 
had been taught or valued, all their traditions, everything that they had built their identity around, it contradicted it. And while the Sadducees denied the resurrection, most of the Jews, though, of the time did not. So these Sadducees were also in line with the Romans, and such a teaching of Peter's might be seen as revolutionary. God's work was a threat on several levels. Now, there's other examples of this in Scripture. When we see that the truth of Jesus comes in and the whole apple cart is indeed turned over, and we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, and we'll see it later on in Acts chapter 19. The gospel came to the city of Ephesus, which was a destination city for worker worshipers of the Greek goddess Artemis, also known to the Romans uh, or by the Romans as Diana. And they were caretakers of her temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, by the way. People would come from all over to visit and worship, and like any spiritual tourist, they wanted something to take home with them, like a figurine of her to put on their table, or for the really devoted, a silver altar that they could set up in their homes visibly, showing the intensity and the authenticity and fervency of their devotion. But when the gospel came to Ephesus, many started turning away from the worship of Artemis and abandoned their silver altars, causing the guild of silversmiths to lose money. I mean, they, they weren't able to, to put food on the table. It was a threat to them, along with several others who had benefited from this Artemis worship and the spiritual tourism. So they called a meeting of those in the Artemis worship trades and alerted them that this new message was a threat to their way of life and their trade. Not to mention them, but a threat to Artemis worshippers all over the world. And such a thought sent the tradesmen into such a rage and frenzy that they began crying out on Artemis' behalf, causing a near riot. So, what does the gospel threaten of your way of life? Seriously, what is it about the gospel that comes in and threatens it? And and in today, our culture, it's anything that prevents you from being your authentic self, at least that's how the world defines it. You know, the world says that if you have to to withhold your sinful desires, then you're restraining your authentic self and that you need to give full vent to it. And anything that prevents that needs to be eliminated. And, And oftentimes that's the gospel because God calls us to die to our sinful desires. We have to give them up. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from them, not embracing them, but turning away from them. And there are many who do not want to do that because they love their sin too much. And it really does threaten what they've built their identity around. And instead, what God wants to do is give us a brand new identity. And most people don't want that simply because they love their sinful identity too much, even though it does not ultimately satisfy. And they know that, but they're afraid to give up control. And so the gospel does threaten our way of life. It might threaten how we, I mean, the people that we, we, we engage with in relationship with, or how we make our money, or how we spend our money, or maybe we would have to leave our profession because we know that God would not have us to continue do what we were doing. And it might cause us to end a relationship or get out of something, or maybe change how what we eat or drink or watch or the conversation we engage in. You see that God's work is a threat because it challenges what it is we believe. It does. 
It causes us to choose what is right and what is wrong according to God's definition of what is right and what is wrong. There is no way to be neutral in regards to the gospel. It, t- it makes us question what we have been taught about our family when we were growing up, or perhaps our religious devotion, what we've been taught, or whether or not what we believe is right and true. And, and that has also implications, because that may mean that if we were wrong, or if it was taught to us by a relative and they were wrong, that means that they are suffering possibly eternally, if they rejected the the true gospel, and that means we would not be with him again. And for many of us, that is so horrific because for most of us, we worship a moral therapeutic deity that enables them to go right into heaven. And it, and, and it has no cost. There is no truth. It's just this, this generic goodness that enables everybody to get in. And so there is no understanding of sin. There's no understanding of God's holiness, no understanding of God's wrath, no understanding of the new birth. There's none of that. And where does that come from? Well, it's based on our own conscience because we don't like the idea of anybody being condemned because if they were condemned, and oftentimes we think that they are better than us in that regard, then what's going to happen to us? It challenges what we believe. The gospel does. It challenges our belief system, and it may challenge the community around us. Missionary Dwayne Elmer talks about sharing Jesus with some Asian adults in some country in Asia, and I don't even know what part of Asia. And every one of them said that that, that before they could follow Jesus, they had to ask a parent, an uncle, an aunt, or perhaps all three. And now now to us who have grown up in American culture, this might sound like an excuse, but in their culture, it is highly important to consult with authority figures about such decisions in life because that's a huge decision. For us in America, we are much more individualistic, and such decisions seem strange. But in those cultures, it is a way of honoring ancestors and to do something that no one else has done can bring them shame. One Asian man actually rejected the gospel message because he was told that he could go to heaven, which sounds great, but to him it meant being away from his ancestors who didn't believe. And for them, ancestors are living and active in their life, and for a culture such as the one, uh, at, such as the one he came from, it was too great a burden to bear, and such a decision would alienate him from all he knew and held dear. I was actually talking to a Muslim man who was coming to my church, and he was interacting with me for quite some time, and he was one of the most faithful church attenders. And as we would talk about different things, and I, I finally asked him, and I said, why don't you become a Christian, why don't you convert? He said, because I'm afraid of losing my legacy. And what he meant was, is that I'm afraid of alienating myself from my family, from my my alienating myself from the status or losing the status within my community and what I have built up over time and all of my past history and everything that I have done. And I remember preaching this, preaching and um, preaching through the book of Luke actually a passage within the book of Luke. And it was in Luke chapter 16 because I felt it was very appropriate to him. What many, what many from such cultures fail to understand is that if our believing, unbelieving dead ancestors were able to communicate with us, they would tell us that where they are is not where we want to be and to embrace the gospel, because it would mean pleasing God. Allow me to illustrate this. In Luke 16, we read about the rich man and Lazarus. 
The rich man had everything he wanted in life, but he didn't do what God wanted. So when he died, he went to the place of torment, also known as Hades. But Lazarus did believe. Even though he was poor in this life, when he died, he went to paradise, also known as Abraham's bosom, and eventually was taken to heaven after Jesus' death and resurrection. But that's something for another time. For all intents and purposes, when we come upon this passage, we see the rich man in torment while Lazarus lives in comfort. And they're actually in the same kind of area with a separation or a chasm between the two. The rich man calls out to Father Abraham, asking him to have Lazarus dip his finger in the water, come over and cool his tongue because he was in such torment. Abraham then informs him that it's impossible For God has fixed a chasm separating the abode of the wicked and the righteous. So the rich man asks Abraham if he would send Lazarus back to speak to his brothers, his family, his ancestors, so that they would not come to that place. But Abraham also says it is an impossibility. Then he says they have Moses and the prophets, and it was sufficient to convict them. That's the power of of the word of God. God's work doesn't just challenge what we believe, but also confronts us in our sin. Check out verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter calls them to an account. Look, who are you standing in front of for a second? Annas, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. We know who Annas and Caiaphas were. Caiaphas was the high priest when Jesus was crucified, and Annas was high priest before Caiaphas and also his father-in-law to top it off. The Romans actually had removed Annas from power, thus violating Jewish practice that held that the high priest was to serve until death and had put Caiaphas in power instead. Some believe that Annas was actually still the power behind the throne, if you will, during Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And the John mentioned here was probably Caiaphas' son, who was to become the eventual high priest. We're not quite sure who Alexander is, but we know that he was from the high priestly family. I mean, that's bold. I mean, Peter is saying this to the very people who executed his Lord. Remember, after Jesus' death, these guys all fled and hid. And now Peter is boldly testifying in front of them again after he had already testified in front of the crowds in Acts chapter 2. That's bold. That's crazy bold. I mean, it's amazing to think about saying that they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. Wow. No one can remain neutral with Jesus or the Bible because the Bible indicts every single one of us as sinners. 
We are all confronted in our sin, no matter what it is. We all have sinful tendencies that we were born with that we try to rationalize. Alcoholism, drug addiction, gluttony, lying, sexual immorality, homosexuality, witchcraft, lust, theft, coarse joking, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. It seems natural to each one of us, and if we're honest with ourselves, we love our sin and actually build our identity around it. But it is that sin that condemns us. We are all responsible for spiritually participating in Jesus's death. It is our sin that he became on the cross, and it is our debt that he paid. Now, here's the next point under this. God's work is also a threat because it changes those around us. Let's get back to our text in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is not an additional 5,000, but a cumulative total of those who believed after Peter's first sermon added to the 2,000 who believed after his second sermon. I mean, what a pastor, what evangelist would not want that return? Here, I mean, even then, and it's, it is 5,000 men, which is actually not including the women and children. The total number was probably more around 10,000 new believers. And that definitely meant that there was change in the hearts of people all around. When we see how God works in the lives of others, it causes us to stop and reevaluate our lives. When we see how God is working and them, that person is making changes, they're, they're abandoning certain practices and adopting new ones that are less familiar or have the appearance of being burdensome or less free, we feel threatened. I've seen this happen in marriages when one spouse becomes a believer. One changes so dramatically that the, that the other one embraces it or it is perceived to be a threat to their own way of life. And then they respond angrily or with accusations, condescension, and the like. They do this because they have to find a way to excuse themselves from believing. So if they can get the now holy spouse from living the way God wants or treating them poorly, that they hate them, then they feel justified continuing on in their disobedience. Now, in order to understand this next section of the passage, we need to go back and look at Luke's first words, or Luke's words in his first volume. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and in volume 1, so that's the book of Luke, in verse 20, chapter 21, verse 10 through 18, we read this. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it. Therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." Remember, it, is the, it was the Spirit's coming that ushered in the beginning of the end of time. Now that we know Luke's words from his first volume, let's look at his words in verse 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you 
and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We can see here that when we are called to testify for his name, that God will equip, equip us to testify on his behalf. God calls us to testify for him, to testify about who he is, but we're also to testify to what God has done in our lives. We all, every single one of us, has a personal testimony, whether you were saved as a child or as an adult. It is God's story written on your hearts. It's how the evil one is defeated, as we read in Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It's by the blood of Jesus that we are saved and that Satan cannot change. And it's the power of a changed life that cannot be denied. And, and, and what do we testify about? Well, we testify God's power at work. They testified about a lame man made well. It was a crippled man who was made well. And it was by the name of Jesus that he was made well. How has God's power been at work in your life? Let me ask you that right now. How is God's power at work in your life right now? How is it? Or is it? If not, then why not? When Jesus saves a person, he saves them to the uttermost. He transforms them and makes them into a new creation. He makes them whole. Why do you not feel whole? Perhaps it's because you've not experienced God's power yet. Maybe you truly don't know who Jesus is. You're not saved. Has God freed you? Has he forgiven you? What has God done for you? Peter testified about God's power at work, but he also testified about our personal responsibility. As we saw before, God's work confronts us in our sin, but God's work requires a response. Remember, each of us is spiritually responsible for Jesus' death. It was our sin that he became on the cross, and it was the price for each and every one of us us for our sins. It also meant that Jesus's death was sufficient to pay the price for our sins. And if we do not acknowledge Jesus's death for our sins, then we have to pay the price for them. Every or each one of us is responsible for the sins that we have done. Not one will be missed. There is not a victimhood when it comes to our personal sin. Now, we can be victims at the hands of someone else's sin, but when it comes to our own personal sin that we have done, there is no one that we will have to or be able to blame. Will we be able to claim that others did it to us or that we couldn't help the struggles we were to have? The sacrifice of Christ was too great to allow us to continue in our sin. Sin must be judged, and Jesus's death has shown that. Each of us must take responsibility for our sins and what we are to do with them, a different way of putting it, as Jesus said to Peter, who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? That will determine what you do with your sin. If you take responsibility, confess them, and believe Jesus died for your sins, he will forgive. But if you reject him, there no longer remains a sacrifice sufficient to pay for our sins. 
Peter quotes scripture that was in Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 28.16, and he shows that Jesus is the chief cornerstone upon which God would build his church. He then says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He testifies about the only Savior God has provided for us all. There are no other saviors. Jesus is the only one through whom we can have salvation. There is no adding to him, no addendums, nothing to take away. It is, it's not through a generic morally therapeutic God, not in any other God, but through Jesus and him alone. He is the only savior of the world, and God has declared this through him by raising him from the dead. And God's work is seen in how he transforms us. Check out verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, ordinary, or common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These guys had been transformed. They were once hiding in an upper room from the Jewish ruling council, and now they were bold enough to stand in front of them, confronting them with the fact that they had killed Jesus. I love how Luke describes them. After all, Luke was a physician, and he had education, but he makes a special effort to note that they were uneducated and common men. They're everyday people just like you and me. These are everyday people. That's what he's talking about, that they're not high-born These aren't people that were born with power or born with silver spoons in their mouth. They were uneducated and common people. They were bold because they had been with Jesus. And I love that. Oh, I love that. Are you bold? If not, have you been with Jesus? For God, it's not about the status we possess. He has chosen to work with the foolish to shame the wise. He has chosen that without status in society, those without special abilities, he has chosen the weak to shame the strong. It's not about the schools you go to or the head knowledge that you have. It matters if your heart has been surrendered to God. It's not in gaining more in the side of the world that we find peace, but it is in giving up. Peter and John were surrendered to Jesus, and God gave them his spirit, and it's his spirit that will help us. God gives us strength. That's what we're saying right here. We can't serve without the strength God supplies. If we can do God's ministry in our own strength, then it's not God's ministry. We need God's strength to be able to stand up and and testify to God's greatness. Do you have this strength? Do you have a holy boldness? Do you need it? Have you testified to others? It's crazy. I mean, or are you afraid? Have you shared your faith with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your classmates? Some would say it's against policy to do that. That's where we have to remember the words of the disciples. We have to obey God rather than men. Look at verse 14 through 18. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's what happens when God is at work in our lives. Many will try to silence us. They don't want to hear it. When we continue on, the world and the devil actually partner together to stop and silence our testimony. 
whether that's through legislation or intimidation. It might come through just cultural understandings of things, which is really the spirit of the age at work in them. The devil wants to silence us. He keeps unbelievers under a veil of unbelief, blind to God's work. And if the devil can silence us, then others will not be transformed. And I will tell you this, that the devil has done a good job at keeping us silent. He has intimidated us. He has made us look like fools or crazy or that we don't have truth or that we are bigots or that we are intolerant or that we are outsiders. We're outside of the mainstream. And he has tried to actually he has captured this idea even of what he believes is good and distorted it and then made those who are believers in Jesus look like they are filled with hate and anger And instead, we have to turn that narrative because it's not that we're to be filled with hate and anger, but filled with love for people and compassion. Because we know that he has distorted the message or caused certain parts to be emphasized, thus making people focus on those certain parts at the exclusion of others. And that leads to misunderstanding and abuse so that people might turn away and disbelieve. For others of us, the devil gives pleasure and comfort bountifully so that we might forget who God is or don't want to think about it. I mean, he might distract us. That's what he's doing. Or he makes us believe the illusion that we can do or have it all, so we busy ourselves with good things but won't have time to do the best thing. What is keeping you from testifying about what Jesus has done for you? Laws? Persecution? Threat of legislation? Litigation? Testify while it is good, because if you fail to testify when it is good and easy, how are you going to testify when things become hard? Things will become hard if we fail to testify. And what kind of faith do we have if we can't testify when things are good? I know some believe that they will be able to testify about God when things get hard. But if you can't testify when it's easy, how do you expect to do it when it's hard? Now let's look at verses 19 through 22 to finish off our time. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Peter and John recognized that while man may try to stop us, we have to obey God rather than men because God's kingdom cannot be stopped. No matter what we see going on in our world today, no matter what litigation there might be, no matter what persecution might be, no matter what type of compromise we might see going on, no matter what pastors may say, no matter what leaders may say, God's kingdom is not going to be stopped. They can't help speak about what they had seen and heard. And many may try to silence us, but we cannot be silent. God has called us to testify, and testify we shall. We shall testify in church, in our homes, in our workplaces, in schools. We will testify by our families and our friends. We will testify in our finances and in our entertainments. We will testify by our words and our actions. Why? Because God's kingdom is going to continue on until God has brought in people from every tribe and tongue of people from all over the world. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and it will have no end. Knowing that God's kingdom cannot be stopped, then what are we to do? 
Be bold like Peter and John. Yes, we are to give a reason for the hope that we have. We are to study. We are to pray. But we are to continue to testify. No matter how polluted it may become, no matter what accusations might have coming at us, we continue to testify about who Jesus is, knowing that man may fail, that we are going to fail, but God will never fail. We're to testify to God's power at work. Pray for God's power and his presence to be revealed. And if you are here, I mean, if you are listening right now and haven't placed your faith in Christ, do so today. Don't wait, because when God is working, it will not stop until all is completed the way God has decreed it. That should be a balm in Gilead for you. That should be an encouragement for every single one of us to know that we can testify no matter where we are about who Jesus is, because his kingdom is coming and the fullness of his reign will be seen and known. And all of the wickedness, all of the thoughts of wicked men will pass away. That's an incredible thought. And that's something that should encourage each one of us. And I pray that it may be an encouragement to you. And I want to thank you for listening and tuning in to today's episode. If this episode has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then would you do us a favor? First of all, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, interact with us on our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. And again, another shout out to our wonderful our wonderful sponsor, Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. You know the drill. If you are looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to give Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team a call. They are phenomenal. They will sit down with you, get to know what you need, your style, your practice preferences, and what you need. And then they will present you with the best options and will continually check in to make sure that they are meeting your needs. I know this and I can say it because Kathy is my agent and that's exactly what she has done with us. I would recommend giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. Four six six four. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. And last of all, before we head out today, I want to thank our amazing Apollos Watered team. Kevin O'Brien, editor extraordinaire, our social media heroes, Rebecca Badal and Eliana Fleming, and our sound engineer, Brian Dana, who always manages to make us sound good. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.